I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of the man. I urge every member of both parties. All right, we are making the call now. Calling. All right, we are calling now. I'm quiet. Tony. Kevin, how are you? Okay, man. A little early in the morning for me these days, but this is good. Well, uh, I want to thank you for uh, agreeing <laughs> to do this. Uh, we just want to let everybody know who's listening. That um, uh, First off, you're listening to This American Podcast Comedy Edition on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. And uh, cool. we, are, we are speaking with Kevin Rudy, who I have known for uh, many years uh, we have a. Um, uh, we're actually both very close to a mutual friend, Rich Scheidner. Yep. And Rich has been a mentor of mine, and uh, said to me uh, that you were to him what uh, he was to me, and that explains a lot about uh, a lot of my psychological and career problems. So, uh, <laughs> so we want to thank you for coming on the podcast today, and uh, hey, I tell you why. I tell you why I wanted to have you on is because. Uh, like I said, a lot of comedians, a lot of local comics in the greater Phoenix area and some throughout the country listen to the show. And you were one of those people that uh, I consider present at the creation. You start out on the East Coast, start out in Pittsburgh, correct, as a stand-up comic? No, more, well, more New York. I, I'm from Boston, but I didn't start in Boston. I much more started in New York with Scheidner, actually at D.C., I met Scheidner in D.C. when we were working there at a little you know, dive bar, comedy bar, open mic. And then when I went back to school in, in Massachusetts, I ended up going down to New York and tracking Richie down there and, and starting at the Improv in New York, really. So was it difficult to get on at the Improv in those days? I mean, what, it was, the process now is, you know, you have to have an agent or a manager or bring... 400 people what was it you went from boston to new york to, to perform at the improv was the process uh, a difficult one no and um, i think if it had been i wouldn't have pursued it you know, i never had that kind of uh belief in myself or need to do stand-up i didn't know what it was really i did it in washington i enjoyed it you know trying it out one night got a few laughs so and I always thought if I hadn't gotten a few laughs that first night, I never would have done it again because at the time I believed the audience was a monolith, you know, that if you didn't get laughs from it at one point, you would never get laughs from it. In other words, if you talk to it over here in this club, it would be the same, like a river, you know. Anywhere you dipped into it, it would be the same. So if I didn't get laughs from it that night, I never would. So I think that uh, it was easier then. The... Um, you didn't have lines around the block of comedians waiting from eight in the morning, like here at the Laugh Factory, to get a few minutes at the on stage to show good, showcase some 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 goods. So uh, it was more go down to the Improv. Uh, Scheidner was working there. He introduced me to Silver Friedman, who owned the club, and I started working as a doorman, really. And then from my job as a doorman, I would go on late at night, like 3 in the morning when everybody was done on a weekend. I'd go on, grab a few minutes, 5, 10 minutes somewhere, and do some stand-up uh, as best I could, start to cobble together a little bit of an act. And that was the beginning of the stand-up explosion. So all of a sudden, there was work to be done or to be had. There were 
you know, MC spots and opening act spots all around the place in these brand new clubs up in up on Long Island and out in New Jersey and up in uh, in in Manhattan. There were there were places where you could make a little bit of money. And for me, coming from a bartending job in Vermont, a little bit of money was all I needed to make. We were, you know, living. Scheidner and I were. Uh, I was splitting a splitting an apartment in New York with Rick, Rick, Rick Overton, actually place we got from Scheidner and so the rent was cheap you know you ate at the club and had free drinks at the club so you didn't need a whole lot of operating money I didn't need a whole lot of rent money and you could kind of cobble together a pretty decent living on these 10 15 dollars get your cab fare sets or a 50 dollars 100 dollars gigs so it was a lot. I think it was easier. There was a comedy boom, so there was a lot of opportunity. There weren't that many people doing it. I don't think a lot of people had woken up to the fact that, hey, I'm funny at the dinner party. My mother told me I was always funny. I, you know, I used to entertain the family all the time on barbecues. I'll be a comedian. All I got to do is go stand online for twelve hours and tell them my <laughs> joke about Uncle. All I got to do is stand and tell my joke about Uncle Fred's ball hanging out during the during the, during the beach party. Are you saying that so, one of the, the important requirements for me to stand up now is the ability to stand in line as opposed to right lines? Is I think that, that's a pretty, yeah, I think the line you stand in is much more important than the one you write. There's a, a comedy booker in the Pacific Northwest who books uh, gigs that are three or 400 miles apart, and people, and people call him up and go, I'm very funny. He goes, that doesn't matter. Do you have a car? So uh, Yeah, there, there was a lot of that back in New York, too. It was when, they, when there were the act, the, the groups of comics who would leave the improv on certain nights to go work in clubs out in New Jersey, there were three, there was like a little platoon, you know, you had to have certain specialists, you had to have a, had to have a, a, a prop guy, you had to have a a, 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 a joke teller, and you had to have a storyteller, and you had to have somebody had a car to drive the three <laughs> of you out to your gig, so... Uh, there were what I called trunk gigs. The guy who booked the gig had the, had the gig in the trunk of his car, Jerry Stanley. They'd drive out there, open the trunk, take out a flag that said, Jerry Stanley's Comedy Tonight, and he'd hang that up on a couple of hooks that were on the wall behind the stage and set up a mic and, you know, maybe inflate a plastic yellow banana for hanging on the wall for, you know, look, it's decorated. <laughs> <laughs> the whole the whole gig the whole gig would fit fit in the trunk and we'd all be in the front seat driving out there. So, when you started, I mean, when you started, you started right uh, right pre comedy boom, but just on the cusp of that. Was there a concept yeah. that it was going to be a career, or was it just you know there no. were certain things I was doing at that age where you go, this is what I'm doing now. I don't know what I'm going to. So it wasn't a career choice. It was just what was it. Yeah, there's no career there. I didn't see a career at all. I didn't even know what stand-ups did. It was like, I think there was a culture in New York, mostly, not in Boston, or maybe in some some bigger cities like Chicago. There were people who understood what stand-up comedy was in terms of, you know, they watched the, they watched Henny Youngman, they watched the Catskills guys, they watched those guys, they knew who they were. I would see guys come on a tonight on the Ed Sullivan show with my father, you know. I just thought they were funny guys like my father and my uncle who'd go on the Ed Sullivan show and tell some jokes, but they had a job. I had no idea that what they were doing on the Sullivan show was their job. Yeah. Uh, I didn't I, I had no idea. My family didn't talk about it, like, well there's a job you could do. You should you should be a stand up comic. Nobody even mentioned it as a as a thing, and so when it became a job that um, that was a career boom in stand-up, 
there in the 80s. It never occurred to me as a career. It sort of just was something I was doing to pick up a little money, just like tending bar or working in the ski area like I had done earlier. It was just something to pick up a little change and cover a few bills and go hand them out. You know, and I, I had been on the GI Bill when I was in college, so I was, I was paying some bills with that. This is just another way to, to get a little money coming in. And I was in bars most of the time anyway, you know, drinking. And I was the guy who would tell jokes or try and be funny, so I was already doing that. I was in bars making people laugh, so this was just a shift from just out of the general population in the bar up onto a stage doing the same thing and getting paid a little for it. So, let me uh, let I me just, let me move it forward a little bit. Uh, the first time I ever became aware of you uh, was was a, a kind of an odd, funny moment for me. I had uh, it was a uh, what I call a king of comedy moment uh, because <laughs> I was I'd gone into the Melrose Improv and I used to hang out in the Melrose Improv before I uh, before I attempted a stand up career. It was actually a hangout. Uh, the the uh, yeah. West Hollywood Bar had a great bar in there and it was a good hangout place and i lived in the neighborhood but was, i had either yeah. just sobered up and started doing comedy or it was right anyway i walk in and i'm looking at television i'm looking at the television and i see a guy on television doing a stand-up routine on the tonight show and then i look to my right and i see the guy who's on television watching himself on television and it happened to be you and what i always remember you what i always remember from it was this kind of bemused look you had on your face like and you were actually kind of judging yourself. You had a grin like, not bad, not bad. And I go, there's the guy <laughs> right there. He's on TV, but he's right here. Like the guy talking about Rupert Pupkin at the end of uh, the, uh, yeah. the movie King of Comedy. That's funny. And then I wandered that's off to funny. do a line in the bathroom, I think. But, uh, I think that's probably, the first, that's probably the first moment I became aware of myself, too. So, wow, I, I can I can do this. I'm actually on the Tonight Show. I can't believe it. I'm watching myself in a bar. It was like, it was a ratifying moment. You know, they used to everybody who was worked out at the Improv when they would do Tonight Show sets, they'd turn those sets on at tonight at the Improv. It was kind of a ritual. You go down and watch your set at the Tonight Show. You know, because it didn't air until much after you taped it, so you'd go down there and watch it. And so I thought, wow, I did it. And it was a ratifying moment for my family, too, because before that, they just thought, what are you doing? You're just walking around, you're wandering around, getting, get past, passing the hat in bars, telling jokes. What are you doing? You know, because I was 30 years old. At, uh, that, at that point, I think you're I was grown man. 35. Yeah. So I was 35 years old. You're supposed to have a career at 35. You're supposed to be, you know, halfway, halfway into a law career or something at 35. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're you're 15 years away from retirement at 35 in in the minds of my parents. 15 years or 25 years away from retirement as a as, as a lawyer at that point. Not 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 supposed to be 15, 20 years into a stupid career telling jokes in bars. So so that was a good moment. That was kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of funny. Look, yeah, there he is doing it on TV. That's funny. Now you uh, you then. Um you know, uh, we're talking about some people that, that we know. I know Rick Overton. I saw Rick Overton. Um, uh, if you're listening in and you're, and you're not totally familiar with the show, we're actually, uh, we uh, podcast from Scottsdale, Arizona. And Rick actually uh, came out to Scottsdale a few weeks ago and did a few shows at the Scottsdale Laugh Factory and uh, uh, had a like a, a, a meeting, a meetup for people who are interested in doing improv. Rick's a great improv guy. So you're talking about yeah. Rick Overton. Uh, and we talked about Rich Scheidner. 
who um, yep. had a great career as a stand-up, and is currently still doing stand-up, but a great career as a road stand-up, where he was like uh, a much-in-demand oh, yeah. comic throughout the country. You kind of took a different path earlier on, though, and kind of went directly into writing. Is that correct? Well, I worked on the road for about 12 years, you know, um, and a lot of it with Rich. He and I had some hilarious times together on the road. I opened for him. I was his middle act, and he would headline, and we'd drive around. We were all over the place in Ohio and uh, all over all over the eastern seaboard together quite a bit. So uh, I worked on the road quite a bit. And then when he came out here with his wife then at the time, Carol Liefer, um, I I came out to visit one October, and it was beautiful. We were over the beach, you know? Yeah. And I was sitting there going, <laughs> what am I doing in New York? There was nothing in happening in New York because New York at that point didn't even have, they were just starting Comedy Central then, so there was really nothing going on in New York. Now, ironically, you know, a lot of people left New York like me to come out here and work in television just as television was booming in New York, really. Within the next year or so, lots of things started to happen in New York, and guys like Colin Quinn and Ken Ober and people like that who stayed in New York, John Stewart, they found lots of work doing shows for Comedy Central and... Uh, other networks that were starting to boom in New York, so it was kind of ironic that we left as that work was really starting to open up, but I came out here, stayed with Rich for a little bit out here, too, but we did a lot of road work together, but I worked in, uh, I worked all around the country and did a lot of cruise stuff. Uh, up until about 92, I quit doing stand-up in 92 when I was, went started working. I started, I started doing some writing with Jay Leno on his uh, stand-up and then his uh, specials. And that got me into some writing work, but I wasn't uh, really looking at writing work. I was doing more stand-up. That was where I was making my living. So I didn't think about writing work much until 92 when I started working with Dennis Miller on his Tribune show. And I was the head writer on that show, and I was really enjoying the writing work, and I was enjoying not being on the road anymore. So that made me turn my attention more towards writing, and I started running across some sitcom guys. And I started finding out how much money sitcom guys were making, doing basically stealing our jokes and putting them in sitcom characters' mouths, you know? <laughs> and I found that out, and I was like, well, shit, i gotta, I got to check out the sitcom world, which I did. And uh, my friend Jim Vallely was nice enough to bring me in and get me a meeting over at... Uh, at Wit Thomas, so I started working over there on what used to be the Golden Girls, but now they were, you know, running a hotel that's called the Golden Palace. That was my first uh, sitcom writing job, and once I once I started to taste the 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 financial benefits and the freedom of being and the fun of just being home and doing writing work, I I, I wanted to do more of that, and so I really started to enjoy it and concentrate more on trying to get from uh, get another sitcom writing gig when that one ended and uh, and that did lead me into a sitcom writing career that lasted longer than my stand-up career did so when i retired from that in 2012 you know i had been doing it uh, as long as i had been doing stand-up or a little longer so now i can look back yeah i was just uh, the, the golden girls the golden girls is a show that uh during its time was not yep. uh, for for our generation and people younger than us. Was not a show that was probably well watched or well received because it's an, uh, a show you know ostensibly about yep. a bunch of much older yep. women. 
Yet yep. it had been, correct me if I'm wrong, or, or tell me if you have knowledge, it has, it has been the proving ground for more successful executive producers of other shows than almost any other show during its time. There was something about the way the show was put together. They, they, there were a lot of jokes on that show, so it was a very funny show. Yeah. And if you got, it, it's like watching, I tell people about a black and white movie, young kids, and I go, it's in black and white. I go, <laughs> if you can get past that, it's a great yeah. film. Like, I watch a lot of silent movies, and I'm always stunned. And, you know, you think of silent movies, you think of some herky-jerky thing, you know. Right. And then I'll watch them, I go, this is a great film. This is well put together. The acting's better than a lot of movies that are made nowadays. But the Golden right. Girls, I go back and look at it, I go, this was an incredibly funny, well-crafted show. So did oh, you, yeah. by the time you were on it, when it was uh, the Golden Palace, was it the yeah. same thing? I mean, a lot of really sharp writers who then went on to do a lot of other wonderful things. No, it was not a good show. <laughs> <laughs> it was not not a good show and i went on from there to a lot of bad shows <laughs> i was going around uh, i was going around like a guy in the harbor in boston sinking ships <laughs> i was helping drill holes in the hulls of many shows <laughs> you know i found out pretty quickly that it's very hard to get on a good show you know golden golden girls was a good show it had a lot of jokes there were good writers on it good actors though but you know really good actors <laughs> that really you could really write for you know part of being able to write well is being able to put your being able to have a clear voice to write for because it's really hard to write for somebody who doesn't have a clear voice you know uh -huh. you can't you can't really write funny jokes for a character that's not clear and sharp and funny himself uh, it just can't be done because the, the character can't carry it. But when the character is uh, well designed and is sharp, and the point of view is sharp, like on the Golden Girls, then you could write a lot of jokes for the characters. And uh, and you knew when the characters came on TV what they were going to say. Almost they were that kind of character, like Ted Baxter and Mary Tyler Moore. You always knew when you came in the room something funny was he was going to do something funny. And you kind of even as a viewer had an idea what he was going to say. And that kind of character is fun to write for. So that's why it was easy. That's why it was kind of easy for me to write for Dennis Miller and Jay Leno and Bill Maher because I had a very similar sense of humor to those guys myself. Bill Maher, and so Bill Maher, and Dennis Miller um, are about the same age and uh, kind of came out of the the same era, but have uh, yep. become radically. And both of them uh, have kind of you know taken the they they are the political comics of our era. You know, I mean, John Stewart could be could be considered that. I mean, of, of the ones that are recognizable, oh, yeah. but uh, totally divergent paths. Were they totally. were they that different early on? What the I hell happened so. to Dennis Miller? Might be my question. I think Dennis just uh, became who he really is. You know, he's a a classic type, really. If you know Pittsburgh, and if you know um, Catholic Irish Catholic working-class Irish Catholic types of people from Pittsburgh, he, they are that kind of conservative, uh, kind of what you would call a little bigoted, a little prone to prejudice, uh, a little prone to uh, a reactionary, you know? Yeah. You know, you know the writer John O'Hara? He's, he's like that. He's, he's a really good writer as a fiction writer. I think he's fantastic. He's, he's, if you want to study good writing, read John O'Hara's short stories, or read John O'Hara's novels, uh, Sermons in Soda Water. They're, they're, they're models of economy and good writing. 
But reading him as a novelist, you would think, you might think to yourself, oh, this guy's probably a liberal because he understands people really well and he seems sympathetic, you know? Yeah. But if you read his collection of political writing from that period of time, from the 60s, you see he's a very reactionary uh, right-wing guy. And he comes from the same place around uh, that Dennis did. And that, that, that strain of Irishmen is... You know what I'm talking about? It, yes, they Boston. do. You know, yeah. you know Boston. You know Boston. I know Boston, and I grew up in the inner city of North St. Louis, so it was that Eastern it, European, Irish, Catholic neighborhood. Sure. The Irish, the Irish Catholic strain of mind is a very reactionary strain of mind, you know. It's very conservative, really. So I think Dennis just basically became himself. You know, they're anti-abortion. They're, they're very religious. They're... They're knee-jerk reactionaries, mostly. And that's what Dennis turned out to be. Even though in the early part, in the 80s, uh, when the money in the comedy world was in being left-wing, you know, if you went into comedy clubs and made fun of Reagan or if you made fun of uh, conservatives, that's where the money was, right? Yes. That's where, the, that's where the laughs were, so that's where Dennis was. And Dennis has always been where the money is. So when he fell out of television, really, when he lost his Tribune show and then his cable show and it was on his way into radio he decided I think he just looked around and said hey Rush Limbaugh is making you know hundreds of millions of dollars doing this uh, bashing President Obama you know I'd be happy to do that now uh, an interesting thing about Dennis but a lot of people don't know about Dennis is that um, he actually comes he has two brothers it's almost like the Marx Brothers where there was a a Marx brother yeah. decided that he was going to be in the business side of it. It was either Gummo, I think it was Gummo who dropped out early. But uh, Dennis's brother Jimmy is one of the uh, most important or successful people in the, the comedy motion picture business nowadays. Did you know? J Jimmy I knew Jimmy Miller, when he was a doorman at the Melrose Improv. Jimmy Miller used to have an earring and look like he was some kind of weird little pirate. <laughs> and he was, I remember when he first came out and he would hang around up at Jay's house with the rest of us, you know, and Dennis and Jimmy and me and Larry Miller and people like that up there at Seinfeld and hanging around talking comedy. And then he was trying to get a business together and represent some people. And one of the earliest clients he had was Judd Apatow. Mm -hmm. And then he started working, booking the Comedy Magic Club and using his office time down there to try and get his booking, his, his own management uh, firm put together. And all of a sudden, you know, I looked around, and uh, Jimmy Miller it runs Hollywood. He does. Mosaic Media is one of the biggest production companies. Uh, um. Jimmy, Jimmy Miller basically runs Hollywood. He's making more. He, he manages just about everybody huge. I mean, including, you know, he's got Amy Schumer. He's got Will Ferrell. He's got, uh, he's got all kinds of people that, uh, that are big-time comedians. And he he manages he did at least manage Judd Apatow. He's got lots of writers. He he produces movies. He's a he's a huge success. He's met many times more successful than Dennis now. And Dennis used to look down on him and tease him all the time, you know, because he was just coming out here trying to be one of the business guys, you know, an agent manager type, which everybody looked down on anyway. You know, when now you, he's go ahead. No, now he now he's you know many times more successful than Dennis and. Uh, I'm sure that sticks in Dennis's craw, but Dennis is up in Santa Barbara living a high life. He hangs out with rich people. He he likes admires rich people. He hangs out with Bill O'Reilly. So he became who he always was, I believe, to answer your question. He always was a, re a reactionary uh, money guy, and he became that. Bill Maher is more, he's 
Catholic Jewish from the New York area. So I think his his basic DNA is more liberal to begin with. You know, I think that's who he is. His who he is is a much more liberal guy. So his his politics has remained you know, libertarian, liberal the whole time, and gotten more like that as it's become even more popular to, to carry that banner. He's the one carrying that torch, really. So he's enjoying that and doing well with that. Dennis went the other way, and he's over on the other side making plenty of money as Bill, Riley, Bill O'Reilly's organ grinder monkey. That's that's what he, you know, he, he had his place in the sun. I mean, at one time, Dennis Miller's name oh, was, yeah. was uh, you know, on everyone's lips. Everybody knew who he was, and now... Uh, a, yeah. a wee bit more obscure. We know who he is. I don't know if a younger generation does anymore. But I want to ask you this. Um, um, you know, I know some of your writing. I know you a little bit. I would, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I would classify you as a classic liberal. Would you agree with that in, in your political and worldview? Uh, I would say I would say I'm a liberal, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and you're also a person who, um, um, there's two things I've noticed that you could do in an argument when I'll see an argument on social media. Uh, is that you can either eviscerate your opponent with um, uh, really strong comedy, or I've also seen where instead of comedy, where you actually want to uh, uh, get, you know, instead of just tearing someone apart, you can use reason uh, to, uh, to, uh, to great effect. So, you know, as I've, I've read you, and you know, I go, this is a guy who understands reason and has come to his opinions and conclusions not based on a prejudice or a bias or I was raised, but through reason. And through well, reason, a, liberalism. I try and I try and use reason. It doesn't get you very far these days, but you know, um, I like re I, I like logic. Yes. And I I am always frustrated by things that are logical that don't uh, achieve that don't get more popular traction. You know, because it seems silly that something that's logical wouldn't just be accepted broadly. You know what I mean? Uh huh. You can see that it works, so why wouldn't it just be accepted? So those those are always frustrating. It's frustrating to use reason because sometimes people just they it's like just that they're clunks and they don't get reason. They can't they cannot reason. They cannot use logic. And one of the things I wish they would teach in school to kids now is not only finances how they work, so they can have something they can use in their life and understand how that works, but logic. There is a there's a math to it. There's an A plus B equals D or C or not. And if kids could use that more, they could they could avoid some of these charlatans in politics who are telling them, "Here's the equation. If we do this, we can have that." You go, but that's not. But that doesn't follow sensibly. You know. Mm -hmm. if, if more people could take apart the arguments of a Donald Trump and see where they go wrong, where the conclusion's wrong, they could see where the premise is not where the conclusion does not address the premise they would say well that's that sounds nice but that's actually not right that doesn't uh, you're not you're not you're not being reasonable and we have a better i think we'd have a better political discussion in this country more reasonable political discussion but uh, yeah i know reason's fun it's, it's it's fun to reason things out i think i mean it's because it's really just problem solving which is what all good jokes are is a is just a, a puzzle you know yes that you've solved, and you solve it well. You come to a, 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 if you set up the premise correctly, when you hit the conclusion, if it's the right conclusion, then you get the big laugh. Basically, that's what it is, right? Correct. Yes. Yes. I've, uh, I, I, you know, I work with a lot of uh, young beginning comics, and I, I'll try to explain to them. I go, you're trying to come up with a funny punchline. 
I go, but if you come up with a strong enough, clear enough setup, you know, just dealing with a classic setup punchline joke that you actually respond to, then you will have a true response that'll be funny. That a good setup, that right. the setup is often much, is the setup is more important to the writer to creating something than the punchline. But so many people seem to want to go in at the punchline first. And politically, it seems like a lot of people want to start off with, well, let's just get rid of everybody. Let's just kick them all out. You know, it's almost yeah. like you're trying to come. It's like it's like a bad writer going, well, he'll walk in, a bucket will fall on his head. Now, how does the bucket get there? Right. I hate Mexicans is not a premise. <laughs> I was not a premise for a joke or a political idea. And then the, and the premise is really the hard thing to find because that's an actual idea. Yes. You know, you, you, it's hard. It's hard to find ideas. I try and look for illogical, like what you're saying, with reason. A lot of good jokes are based on some sort of illogical idea. So if you find something that's illogical, you know, mm -hmm. you can find a joke, good joke in it somewhere. I was, uh, I was I was speaking with a friend of mine. I was in, in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago when I uh, when I when I saw you, uh, and uh, uh, later on that night I was having dinner with someone who I'm very near and dear to, whose whose uh, political conclusion for Los Angeles is we just got to throw them all out. <laughs> And he goes, and then I says, well, that's not going to happen. He goes, we got to stop him. I go, you're not going to stop it. I go, if you study, uh, if you study history at all, just a cursory examination, you'll see that migration, once it takes place, takes place, and you can't yeah. stop it. I go, so I go, and he says, the difference between you, the conservative, and I wasn't being mean to the guy, and me, the liberal, is the conservative is going, we have to stop it, which is impossible, and the liberal me goes, how do we make this work? Yeah, it's well. It's your It's to your benefit. The whole place, has, the whole country, got to where it is because of all the people who came in here, including us and our grandparents and everybody else, right? Yes. But you know, these people say things that are just, just absurd. You know, to say, uh, I just had that on the tip of my tongue. We were talking about something. Oh, people say, um, people are stealing. Mexicans are stealing our jobs. Yeah. So I, you know, you see an opportunity in there because that's not possible for a joke I used to do a long time ago about um, what. So, Mr. Rooney, what brings you to the uh, what? What makes you? What brings you to the advertising business? Right in the job interview. Uh huh. I said, "Well, some Mexican stole my melon picking job." <laughs> like, like, like the illogicality of if you could steal jobs why would you steal the melon picking job and not the indoor air conditioned advertising job <laughs> why why would you steal the worst job <laughs> uh, but you know but in fact when you think about it, people keep saying that they're stealing jobs you go you can't steal a job it's impossible you have to be given the job by the employer. So if you've got a problem with where the jobs are going, your problem is with the employer, not the employee. So you should you right? should probably deport the employer, send them back to Ireland or Germany, or that's that's where the problem is with the jobs is with the employers. The companies are more than happy to bring in these cheap labor. There's not going to they're not going to close the border to cheap labor because that's where all their profits are. Mm -hmm. They're giving the jobs to the people who will work for less. Okay, so if you would think for a minute and reason for a minute and, and use your mouth and your brain, you could actually clarify the problem and say, it's that Mexicans are not stealing jobs. Jobs are being given to Mexicans instead of Americans because they'll do them for less. 
and the company will make more money. It's pretty simple. They're not stealing them. You can't steal it. When you leave work at the end of the day, you don't lock your job up. <laughs> your job is just there. You come back the next morning, your job's there, selling cars or doing whatever you do. You can't steal it. It has to be given to somebody else. And so these people just don't have, they've got their heads buried up their asses so far, and the reason it's buried up there is xenophobia. They just want to blame it on somebody. Sure. They don't want to, they don't want to accept the blame. So the blame is you. You're to blame, and your neighbor is to blame. Okay, you're to blame because you won't work for less, and you, you and you demand uh, more pay probably than you're worth, so you can have your SUV and fill it with gas and have a boat and have a ski do in a big house that's ten thousand square feet that you don't need, and so you refuse to do jobs for less. And somebody comes in and says we'll do them for less. You think he's stealing the job, but in fact, it's your friend, the employer, just said, you know what? I'd like to make more money this year, too. I'd like to have a big, uh, bigger house and a car. So I'm going to make more money this year by cutting back on the wages. I'm going to give these jobs that you used, the job that you used to have, Tom, I'm giving it to Enrico. He didn't steal it. So that's where you, you, know, you can really, if you sit down and think about it, you can, you can get any number of jokes or routines out of that. You know what I mean? Well, you know, you said something, I mean, at the very beginning, of the, the, the initial joke, they go, why are you looking for a career in advertising because a Mexican stole my melon-picking job, that when that job's not available to you, the, the intelligent person or the smart person might go, all right, I now have to, if I want these things, if I want this SUV or I want this house that's at a slightly higher elevation than everyone else's or one that's slightly yeah. closer to the water, I'm going to have to do something else. And that's where you have to get creative sometime or I might have to do more. Some of it, I think, might be a work ethic situation, and some of it might be cultural. My father was a factory worker who hated working in a factory, but he was a factory worker. He later on tried to sell real estate, and then, uh, then, right. the, poor, the, then the poor man uh, lost that job and inherited a million dollars from a friend of his, so he had a tough existence. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's absolutely true, because I ain't working anymore. I'm going on disability, and then he had a close That's friend great. who passed away and gave him money. But yeah. he, you tell me, he goes, Tony, I don't want you working in a factory. I want you to have a better life. Now, whether yeah. I had a better life or not is immaterial, but we raised, our generation was raised oftentimes by our parents not to have the jobs they had because to them, right. the lawyer, the doctor, or even a guy with a lunch bucket, seeing a guy with a tie on, thinks the guy with the tie on has a better life. Yeah. So a lot he of times. Yeah, but these jobs still exist. Someone still has to paint the car. Someone still has to change the tire. Someone still has to right. do the plumbing. But so much of our generation was told, you don't take those jobs. Right. No, you want to get paid more. You want the job that pays the most. You want to live the good life. And so you, ha you aim higher than that. And then a lot of people get there, and they just give themselves more money. You know, Carly Fiorina, hey, you know what? I think I'm worth a hundred million dollars a year. And votes yourself that salary, yeah, as a uh, as yeah. The, I'll just give myself package. that much money. What do you? I don't know what some of these some of these CEOs who make ten million dollars a year. I don't know what they actually do. Uh, you know, I, I'm not privy to their job to see what it is that they do that earns that money. You know, what I mean, some sort of. I like the guy. I like the guy for the insurance company executive who made a, a ton of money one year because his big idea was. Why don't we just charge people more for their policies? Yeah. And so the company made a lot more money that year because they just raised rates. 
but that's not actually having done anything other than, hey, my big idea is let's price gouge people. Okay, Tom, you get a bonus. Great idea. We charge more for everything. But that's not really an idea. Um, you know, so... Well, it's almost, like it's almost a criminal idea. It's almost like, a, you know what we're going to do? We're going to extort people. It's, um, it's, it's almost going back to the old neighborhood form of, quote, insurance, unquote, where a group yeah. of guys that come into your store and go, we sell uh, window insurance. You know, we'll make sure your yeah. window doesn't get broken. They go, I don't need it. And they go, yeah, you do, because we'll break your window. It's almost yeah. that sort of thing, which is how a lot of insurance actually started. Sure. I mean, in that, in that world, Whitey Bulger is just a CEO. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think what, you know, uh, one of the business issues might be that the CEO's real job, you know, and I've known a couple CEOs, uh, and uh, uh, it, their real job is to make sure that the stock price stays up. The, yeah. the, the, uh, it's almost like there's become a, a disconnect between the product, you know, uh, these blue yeah. widgets and the stock price. Now, we sold right. less blue widgets this year, and they were a lower quality, but through the story we were able to push through the media, our stock price has yeah. gone up. That's their job, and it's a quarterly job. That's what Carly Fiorina did so badly. She lost everybody's stock money. And yet, he's now running for president. I mean, this is, you know, it's a failing up, um, and I don't want to say, you know, you don't have to agree, but we used to joke about, when I was doing stand-up and touring, we used to look at Dennis Miller and go, I've never seen anybody fail up so rapidly in my life. The guy, right. the guy loses Saturday Night Live and gets his own talk show. He gets loses his talk show. He becomes a, a commentator on Monday Night Football. He just seemed to keep right. failing upwards. And I went, "This guy's stunning." And Carly Fiorini. What's that? Monday Night Football. Commentator yeah. on Monday Night Football. Yeah, yeah. A guy, a guy sits home at night like me, watches Monday Night Football. It's the one time of the week that everybody in America wants to feel like they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh, look, it's a slant play. That was a fumble. This is a, oh, it's a two-point convert. And, you know, and the wife said, what's that? What's that? And he can say, oh, it's this, it's this. And he knows what he's talking about. Then they put on Dennis Miller and he says, I haven't seen a guy fail that fast in seven or all across in the Rubicon. They go, what's that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what he's talking about. All of a sudden, the guy doesn't know what the hell's going on anymore. He's got Dennis Miller... Got Dennis Miller commentating and turning him into an idiot. <laughs> and that's why nobody liked. That's why nobody liked him as a commentator. Says, "I don't need to be made to feel stupid on Monday Night Football. It's supposed to be my sanctuary from feeling stupid." <laughs> you've you've <laughs> turned it into a place where I sit here in just total nervous apprehension of when's the next reference going to come up that I don't understand. Hey. <laughs> hey, where 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 do you throw that ball? Far Tartuga? <laughs> what? What? What's he talking about, honey? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, Carly Fiorina. I was telling somebody. Other day, I said. I said she's the. I said she's the Dennis Miller of politics. They go. What are you talking about? I go. I don't want to become that. So. Never mind, but yeah. she just has, it seems to keep failing up, you know. I screwed yep. this up, so I should be president. Did you watch sure. the debate? Well, we, we, didn't, we didn't get a chance to see the debate last night. We were putting on a live show here, and uh, yep. my Clippers, it was their season opener, so I was kind of tracking that. I tried to catch some of it uh, uh, yep. later on. Did you watch the debate? Great. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Your thoughts? I did watch it. 
Well, it's fascinating, you know, because, you know, if you like watching people, you come across a lot of crazy people. But last night in the debate, to watch a guy like Chris Christie and Rand Paul and Carly Fiorina and really Kasich and at this point even Bush and Rubio act as if they still are in the race somehow was it's on borders on insanity <laughs> it's like talking to a guy at the top of a hill in Vermont to tell you how he's going to ski down the hill but he's not wearing any skis <laughs> like um uh, Chris Christie talking about when I go to Washington you're not going to Washington fatty you aren't going okay you barely register on the national polls as 1% you're not going to go to Washington and be president why are you even on the stage I mean it's like what happened with the, with Sarah Palin somebody like Sarah Palin what happened was Someone like that who understands so little about the job of being president that she actually thinks she can do it. You know? <laughs> yeah. She's not stupid enough to think that she can walk between the World Trade Towers on a high wire, right? No. Uh because -huh. she can see that she'll she can see the consequences of her failure to do it correctly, so she doesn't even tempt it. But she doesn't understand the job of being president, and she says, "Yeah, I'll do that." <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. I'll do that. But if you really screw it up, you're gonna you're gonna cause a lot of pain for a lot of people. I'm not going to. I can do that. All it is is all it is is standing at a podium and 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 talking a little bit. I can do that. That's not what it is. But you know, I watched the debate and to hear these guys talk. The Republicans. I said, you know, it's like they portray themselves as all of a sudden the, the Republicans. They're portraying themselves as the progressives. They're the they're the progressives, they're the populists who are going to cut back on the rich a little bit to help the middle class. And I said, well, don't be Robin Hoodwinked by that. <laughs> I find the it... Money is, uh, the money has always gone the other way, and it always will. And so some of the joke writing process we were talking about, it's like, if I can find a little bit of an inconsistency and maybe a pun or something to hang it on, you can cobble together a little joke maybe, you know what I mean? I, I find it fascinating, you know, uh, having followed po politics, you know, avocationally, you know, most of my life, to see now a bunch of a bunch of these guys on stage talking about they want to help the middle class. Where a few years before they were they were talking about the miracle of the marketplace, that the marketplace decide creative destruction, uh, and right. uh, and actually, if we just give the rich more money, then they'll spend it in a way that makes the middle class bigger. And now they're all acting like they're a bunch of lunch bucket guys. I'm going, this is. John Kasich did say one true thing. It was either last night or recently. He goes, we've gone insane. It's like the guy yeah. with the perennial bad haircut. At least someone should call yeah. John Kasich up and go, comb your hair before you go on TV, John. Get a nice I hair. Know. Go to Supercuts. He can't control that cowlick. It's like, oh, yeah, we've gone. We've, I've heard candidates up here talk about getting rid of all of a sudden they're, they're, there's one guy or two in there who's trying to act responsible. I'll I'll run for president against my own party by being responsible. I won't I won't say we're going to cut Medicare and Medicaid, and I'll call them out for it. It was weird to watch. It was very strange to watch them fight to be the most populous. But I I think it's funny that they don't they don't talk about helping the poor. That's still somehow a terrible thing for people to talk about. Yeah, they help the middle class because let's help the respectable people. <laughs> 
you don't help the poor. Now you're a commie, you know? Yeah. Now yeah. you're now you're like Jesus. Now you're out there washing the feet of whores. And, you know, what are you, come on, what are, what are we doing here? We don't help poor people because, obviously, poor people, you don't get to be poor without having a character flaw. Yeah. But yeah. the middle class, they're good people. So if they're middle class, if they're not rich, it's because they're having problems of some kind. We can help. But the poor are the poor because they got a, they got them. They're just too busy getting laid and having too many kids and drinking. And they're doing they're doing something wrong. But they never mention the poor. It's funny how they you're making the poor sound like a. a it's not, I think we should all go broke. You made it sound like a good deal. <laughs> yeah, it's like now you're just throwing good money after bad, helping the poor. It's funny how they they really steer clear of the poor. They just but somehow it's okay for them to bring up helping the middle class. And the audience is okay with it because they are the middle class. Have you noticed? Yes, help. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, help us. Mm -hmm. Have you noticed a change in? Um, I, re I, I re the first debates I was aware of, uh, and I, I think I was aware of them because we were we were Catholic, and it was Kennedy, and of course debates were a very big deal when they were first televised, the Nixon Kennedy debates, and I, I imagine right. they were a big deal prior. But it was an important, somber thing that even a guy who was taking a, a streetcar or a bus to his lunch bucket job would watch these because he knew that he got to participate in an important decision, and they were serious right. events. Uh, I caught right. some of it last night. People are booing. People are cheering. I thought I heard a cowbell clinking. I thought I saw John 316 <laughs> on a board. You know, I, it, they've become some sort of weird bacchanal there's a difference now in the audience at these debates. They talk about a tax break, and the audience raises up their 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 cigarette lighters. <laughs> Free bird. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the Lincoln Douglas debates would last for like Lincoln would speak for three hours, then the audience would come back. They'd go have lunch. They'd come back, and, and Douglas would talk for three hours, and they'd go have dinner and come back, and there'd be rebuttals. People can't even follow that kind of thing anymore. No, that's a, that's a that's a real debate of substance, and people can't even follow the logic anymore. So, speaking is deteriorated as an art, and sort of, sort of debating is deteriorated as an art, and thinking and writing have deteriorated. I always said, if I can just live long enough, I might become the poet laureate because you know the standard dropped far enough for me to become a writer, so I just have to hang on. <laughs> Listen, Kev, we got to, uh, uh, we, uh, I'd love, you know, we didn't get to, um, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm going to say fortunately because I've, I've so enjoyed having you on and, and uh, listening to you. Uh, we didn't get to, you know, writing process and, and a lot of things yeah. I want to talk to you about, about that sort of thing. So we'd like to uh, call you again in a couple of weeks and have you on. And uh, if, I, if, sure. I can, if I can discipline my mind enough to go, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Discipline my mind enough to go. I'm going to talk to him about writing and the writing process. Have you on in a couple of weeks and, and talk about that sure. if, if you would allow us to do that? Sure, my pleasure. Love to do it. All right. Uh, You've been listening you know, to. I, I, go ahead. I'm a, I'm, a good, I'm a good Irishman. I'd love to talk about myself. Anything that involves me and my process. And, you know. <laughs> All right. You know, I was going to say, you notice, I was just thinking as we were talking about the, the audience last night cheering and clapping when they say, we're going to help the middle class. They cheer because you know that's you help me, right? Uh huh. I'm going to help you, but now they boo if it's like if if says now President Obama. He just wants to give away stuff to his constituency, right? Yeah. 
he's just he's just promising to give away things to his people. They boo that. But if someone's promising to give away stuff to them, they cheer it. Exactly. Exactly. So if you're gonna if you'll promise to give something to me, I cheer that process. But if you promise to give something to somebody else, I have to boo. Yeah, they're they're a little all, all over the map over on the right side of the aisle right now, and and we'll talk all about that more the next time we have you back. That'd be uh, great. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to uh, Kevin Rooney, uh, <laughs> stand-up comedian and sitcom writer, and uh, one of the was often called the smartest guy in the room. And I think after listening <laughs> to it today, we can absolutely agree. Uh, Kev, I will see you uh, the next time I'm in Los Angeles, and we'll have you back in a couple weeks on this yeah, American thanks, podcast. Tony. Thank you, Kev. I appreciate it. Enjoyed the chat. Talk all to right. you later. Take care, okay. sir. Bye. 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 Um, all right. We are, uh, you know what? I see you. Uh, I see you clapping. That was great. That was great. He's great yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, I, um, I'm still devastated at the fact that you guys think that the Golden Palace wasn't a good show. He wrote on the Golden Palace and, yeah, and I, didn't think it was a, a good show. Can I be honest with you? I, I'm not totally aware. I was aware of the Golden Girls. Sure. You know. Um, yeah. But I, um, that's almost like saying Joni loves Chachi wasn't irrelevant either. And I'll, I'd have to, you know, I'll go to fisticuffs over that. What do you think was a better show, Joni Loves Chachi or Charles in Charge? Uh, Charles in Charge. Char I hated Charles in Charge. Well, I don't blame you, but she had great sisters. Oh, is that what it was? was only, you know, to be honest, that's all we watched for was the sisters. Joni, you didn't watch for Joni. No? No, Joni wasn't a looker. Joni wasn't anything other than, you know, Chachi. Unless you went for Chachi, which... Chichi, chichachi. Well, that was uh, I. I love I love talking to that guy. Uh, like I said, a funny guy and a smart guy who can actually in in any conversation go back and forth between being funny and being smart and be able to tie it all together. I tell you what, I'm excited about for um, for tomorrow. Uh, and we're far from done. We got about another forty minutes to go. But what I'm excited about for tomorrow is that Bob will uh, be back in his no uh, that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, feel bad. I feel bad for Bob, and I'm going to tell you why. And why? Why would you do that? Well, um, I feel posture. bad because we invited you in. We said, come in anytime and guest host. We want you to be a regular here on the show. And you said you could do it today. And I, I had a really long interview, but it was, it was a, a really worthwhile interview. Well, I have great posture. That's you do. You have good thing. posture. That is the important You're thing. Up. You know, we're going to have on the show tomorrow is uh, two incredibly funny guys. Jeff Altman. Jeff Altman. We're going to have uh, Jeff Altman, and we're going to have uh, also a very funny comic, Jackson Purdue. I saw Jackson Purdue one time tell one joke. I was walking through a room, and uh, I was walk walking through some comedy club. It was, I was doing business, and, and I had to go through the club, and the joke was, and it, there's certain jokes that stay with you forever because they're so good and so true, and this is the joke. I'm going to tell his joke. Okay. All right? I'm going to tell him, to, and I'm giving him credit for it. Yes. Okay? Well. It's not, I say, hey, I came up and said, and the joke was, remember when you were a little kid and they told you anyone could grow up to be president? Remember the day you figured out it wasn't going to be you? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it wasn't going to be my friend Stephen Wiley. <laughs> or anyone you knew. <laughs> You know, it's funny, uh, it, it, just to tell you what kind of neighborhood and culture I grew up in, is um, <laughs> Billy O'Connor, who's a funny guy, lives in town, and wrote a great book, Confessions of a Bronx Bookie, talks about in his neighborhood, I think um, uh, 
Ace Freely from Kiss was a guy that he grew up with. Yes. So that's the biggest success from his neighborhood. You know who the biggest success from my neighborhood is? I, w I don't know. Me. So that shows you <laughs> the problems. <laughs> politics. Yeah, the politics, the culture <laughs> in that neighborhood. Anyway, Jackson Purdue is going to be in tomorrow along with Jeff Altman, who uh, back uh, back in the golden age, whatever you want to call it, the golden age, you know, in the 70s, early 80s, used to make me laugh till I cried me and also well. made David Letterman laugh till yeah. he cried. <laughs> the very first time and the very first time I ever saw a live stand-up comedy show was at the comedy store in Los Angeles right around this time, right around World Series time in 1978. Because I moved to Los Angeles during uh, right before the World Series of 1978 between the uh, the Yankees and the Dodgers. Yes. And uh, I went for a walk because I didn't know where I was, and I was scared to death of L.A. traffic. Scared to death. Went so for we a walk. I said, we're going to park the car and just walk. Park That's what we're going to do. Because these people drive crazy. Crazy drivers. And walked for miles and found myself standing in front of the comedy store. And went, oh, my God, i got to go in there. And uh, went to the comedy store and saw a lineup like no other. Leno, Letterman, wow. uh, I think uh, Jimmy, Leno, Letterman, Jimmy Walker, probably Mike Binder, and who I kind of vaguely knew from a show called Make Me Laugh, yeah. I became friends with <laughs> later on, and Jeff Altman, Jeff. sitting on the stool like a dog barking and making me laugh so hard, I thought, I thought I was, I was something physically was going to tear. Well, you brought up Make Me Laugh. What a great show that would be to bring back. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, I, I loved that show. For those of you listening who don't know, back in the 70s when comedy was starting to boom and they were trying to take advantage of it, uh, uh, when they were trying to take advantage of it, they came up with a show called Make Me Laugh. And it was ran by an old song and dance. The host was a song and dance man named Bobby Van. Bobby Van. Yeah, Bobby the Van. tall guy. He yeah. had one hit song, too. What was that song? I don't remember. You're bringing up things. Yeah, well, that's what I do. Yeah. Hey, he was a famous guy when? I don't know. He had what nice was blonde hair. He parted it on the right side, and he had a very tall wife. I have a third degree of separation from uh, Bobby Van, by the way. I have Please several degrees of separation. Share it, okay. would you? I will in a moment. Okay, I'm, I'm teasing right now. I'm teasing the... So I went to the... Uh, uh, Bobby Van was the host of a show called Make Me Laugh. He wasn't a stand-up comic. Okay. Are you going to phone call? Am I interrupting? No, please do it. Okay. Please enjoy. Okay. I'm following you. And they would have comics on, and a person would sit in a chair, kind of a boothy chair. Yes. And the comic was supposed to make them laugh. And if the person would not laugh, for each minute they didn't laugh or something, they got 50 bucks. wasn't a lot of money. wasn't a lot of money for not enjoying yourself. If you'll be miserable for a while, we'll give you $500. That was the premise. Right. While someone tries to make you happy. And they went down, and I think they grabbed every comic at the comedy store at the time, and had them on. Bruce Baum was on the show. Bruce Baum. Yeah, and Mike Binder was on the show. Kip Adada, who was one of my favorites in those days. And you would just see these guys, and you just <laughs> love it. It was a great show. Now, Bobby Van, who was the host of the show. Um, yes, that's him, yeah. He, Bob just showed me a picture. This is Radio Bob. And uh, um, Bobby Van had a, uh, he, he developed a, a brain tumor. Ooh. And could no longer, and I believe passed away. And then they tried to bring the uh, show back a few years later with his uh, wife, now his widow, who had been a showgirl named Elaine Joyce. That's it. Elaine Joyce. Yes, who was a very pretty girl. And now, years later, I used to attend bar at a place in West Hollywood called Sloan's. It opened in 1919 as a speakeasy and had been in continuous operation. And uh, uh, 
was a bar on when Melrose was kind of funky in that neighborhood. In that the neighborhood it was in, it wasn't like a cool neighborhood, and it was like kind of like a. It was a drunky bar, very popular drunky bar. And years later, it fi- years after I stopped working there, it closed because the woman who owned it finally got a better deal to put a boutique in there or to sell it for a lot of money because the neighborhood had really grown. Right. And so she shut down this this bar that a lot of people love that opened since 1919. She shut it down maybe 10 years ago, and it turned out the woman who owned the property and sold it was Elaine Joyce. Wow. Who had lived around the corner for years. Nobody knew that. So that's I, that's my like second degree location is everything. Yeah, second degree of separation from, from Elaine Joyce and Bobby Van and brain tumors. What about and make me laugh? What about Gary Mule Deer? He was on the show as well. Gary was on the show a lot. Gary still works. He had a great line. What a great Gary Mule Deer's <laughs> greatest lines was, uh, "I love this business. It's it's the only business where you can come back and work every year if you'll take less money." <laughs> <laughs> he was great. He and Joe Cochran seemed to be. Uh, uh, Joe reminds me of a of a of a, of a Joe Cochran local comic local Joe Cochran comic, Vietnam correct. vet wonderful guy Joe Cochran play uh, guitar player as guitar well player. folk singer uh, river dancer is he a river dancer no no you added that for comic and why not why not yeah I mean river dancing is open for everybody you're talking about the dancing with your hands hang limply at your side. And you just dance with your feet. Do you have? Why do you have to look at something else when you you mentioned limply and you didn't look at my hands? Well, yeah, that's the story of I grew up with penis envy for the my whole life. I know him. I learned. I that learned was my favorite band. Everything. Penis envy. Everything I've learned about on they how they became to, the Yardbirds later. How to nurture relationships was learned from Penthouse Letters. I don't. Uh, that's what I struggle with on a daily basis. You know. Yeah. I, I do. You know what? There's, I, I tried to do a joke for a long time where he's talking about it. I go, one of the problems for our generation of men. Yes. Uh, and later on, it, it, it's been written about by uh, psychologists and serious people, not us, was that I was raised on Playboy. So I wasn't raised on a long-term relationship. I was raised on a new one every month <coughs> who was already with no clothes. Well, you know? Quickly. Yeah. She yeah. was already with no clothes. Already. That's a nice phrase. Your grammar is... Tremendous. I went over to see the woman, and she was already with no clothes. She had with no clothes on, not not bit of clothing. Well, there, there's been some uh, serious uh, conversation in the last 10 years or so by uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, writers, uh, about one of the issues for uh, interpersonal relationships in young people nowadays is since pornography is so prevalent that young guys who are then have easy access to pornography right now which was difficult to access ah. when we were young, that then they're seeing this, for, and this is idealized version. It's not actually idealized in the positive way. Sure. Idealized version of what a woman looks like uh, and what sexual activity is. And that it, in small towns, some people said it became a problem with no one wanting to get married because these boys, they're sitting there in Chili Coffee, Ohio, and they're looking around at the girls that are available to them in that town, yet the girls available in pornography Different, and so they can't, they're not forming long term interpersonal relationships. Correct. Man, 
Boy, Let's you know go back what? and you talk really about brought, Bobby You really brought the bad I out did. of that. Yeah. <laughs> that just, go beat my Which it just proves that everything uh, everything our parents told us was true. <laughs> they told us porno was bad, and we didn't believe them. It's, you know what? It, it, it's, it's atrocious. It's, All porno should be burnt. It is the intentions of not looking at the porno is what drives us, though. You don't, you can, the intentions. You can have the intentions of not looking at it, but... That doesn't make you, um, you know. We're going back like to your, your earlier supposition. That Do you intention. remember your first hardcore porn magazine that you watched or that you looked at? The very first one. I remember watching one for quite some time. Not a movie. Never touched it. Not a movie, but a, 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 a publication, a print magazine, one of those old ones with the 70s hairdo and the huge Apache Junction below the waist. I kind of do. Well, I can remember mine. Mine was... Tell us about it, It Bob. was called Zonked. Z-O-N-K-E-D. They didn't care. It shocked me. It shocked me. I was in a tree fort in the middle of a field of a pasture and walking through there on my way to school, and there it was, right by the dirty mattress and oh you found it inadvertently inadvertently right and there were this is through no fault of your own no i was not that i was searching for it i think it was you were out hunting for dirty books in the field no no but it did change my life and i think of it as not a coincidence at all it was divine intervention a divine intervention of (laughs) destiny zonked by the time I got rid of it, we passed it around, of course. Yeah, yeah. You could share with only, you're a good guy. There was only, you could only, you couldn't even open it. Just the front page and the back page. <laughs> Due to rain damage. I think, yes, yeah, yeah, precipitation. I think the first time I saw... Um, uh, Boy, this went bad. Yeah, hardcore insertion yes. in a periodical. I think a kid named Evan Norrid brought a few pieces of a magazine he'd ripped out of his dad's magazine no i'll tell you what here no no i take that i'll tell you what screwed me up early on okay uh my grandpa john the one who used to threaten to send me to the police station with the robe well yeah for some reason they he and i think his third wife watched me a lot and they would leave me at their house and they would leave just take off they would just take off and i'd be at the house i'm like eight Seven, eight, Which is nine. A, that's a great time to be alone. But see, you could actually leave children alone then. I'll tell you why. Because they would look at you and go, if when I come back, there's any problems, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. So you were actually more well-behaved when you were by yourself. See, you can't do that with a kid nowadays. They go, they left the children alone, and, and then they got in the, and they took drugs, and one of them fell in the pool. And they go, well, of course, because you didn't leave. You just left going, I'll be back. Right. You didn't go, I'm leaving for an hour. If you do anything stupid, I will beat the shit out of you. We will waterboard you. Yeah, you don't tell that. that but I would be told that, so I'd be very well behaved while alone. However... Yes. As a, a child and being curious, and there was no food or water or anything. So uh, I found these books that my grandpa had. Ah, here we go. We're getting and we're they were peeling called, off layers here, folks. They were called Sex to Sexty. Stop it. Yes. Sex to Sexty. And what they were, and this, is, <laughs> this formed me so much in my interpersonal relationships and career. Because what they were, were, they were, they were uh, magazine-style books that were full of uh, drawn and written Dirty cartoons and jokes. I can identify. And I remember one, and it was like a drawn uh, picture of like a really busty young blonde girl who was naked sitting on a bull, holding the bull's horns, and the caption was, Gee, you're horny. 
They had, and another, it never left you. No, and another cartoon I remember is a guy's walking by a hotel room and there's a transom in the old days where it'd be like a little window above a door yep. to let air in. And he yeah. hears a voice coming out going, going uh, suck, Mary Beth, suck, blow is a figure of speech. And I'm eight or nine. Right. Maybe seven. Imagination. And I'm reading these things that I found under my grandfather's bed. And probably with some nudist magazines, too. Well, yeah. He was a Randy character. I Randy. Guess. That's a term that's not used a lot. He was also the guy that when they thought we were like, we'd be <laughs> over, they, they'd invite us over and the family would be over. And it'd be like 11 o'clock and we're little kids want to fall asleep. Go, go go sleep on a couch in the other room. We're not leaving yet. Because they'll be in the living room drinking. And there was a, and he'd be laying on the kitchen floor sleeping. And when he thought we were all asleep, he's the one going, I got this uh, record here. Kids are all asleep, ah. huh? And it'd be like a Red Fox record. <coughs> you know? Well, and he was a filthy man. Oh, man. I saw him in Vegas one time with uh, Steve Sharippa, who later on was on The Sopranos, was a friend of mine who was uh, running, um, running uh, shows in Vegas and was the, one of the filthiest shows I ever saw. So He, uh, he was filthy. Yeah. Well, my grandfather would then play Red Fox records. They're called party records. <laughs> I remember seeing him when I was a kid. Like, I'd be flipping through my grandpa's album and see him, and i go, What's that, Dad? He'd go, Oh, that's a, that's a party record. That's not for you. I, don't, I wish my dad wouldn't play those when you kids are here. You know, you, you understand my father. He's not even my father. I don't even like him. He raised me, but he's a son of a bitch. <laughs> it always came to that. The more my father drank, the less relatives I had. He's not my brother. He's an asshole. <laughs> Stop calling him uncle. He's done a lot over Yeah, here. yeah. Barb, Barb, the kids aren't calling Jack uncle anymore. You can't bring him over here. Yeah, I can't bring him over. He drinks his beer bottle with just two fingers. <laughs> two. That takes a lot of strength. Yeah. In the you know what? Let's take, um, um, we're going to take, you know, we haven't taken a break. No, we And haven't. we also haven't said uh, that this show is brought to you by... The Philadelphia Sandwich Company. I love that place. Dennis Link, right? Dennis Link, PhiladelphiaSandwichCompany.com. He will soon be unleashing on the greater Phoenix area and unleashing in a positive way mobile kitchens and trucks that will bring you some of the highest. You've eaten off of a... You've eaten off of a truck on a work site before. I have. It's like a half-frozen burrito. Yes, not that good. Yeah, and some otter pop that's melting. You know, it's not good. Your your burrito's frozen. Your ice cream's melting off a lot of those things. And there's no ice in your sodi pop. No sodi pop. Yeah, not so with Dennis Link's uh, Philadelphia Sandwich Company trucks. They'll be bringing you high quality, I mean high quality high restaurant quality. food at an affordable price, uh, mobile throughout the city. We want to thank Dennis for being a sponsor of the show. PhiladelphiaSandwichCompany.com is one of our sponsors. And the Tempe Comedy Concert Series, longest running comedy concert series in the Valley of the Sun. Tomorrow night, Friday night, at the Tempe Center for the Arts, it's Class Clowns. Wow. Class Clowns is the show that is kind of the springboard, if you will, to the uh, vibrant local Phoenix comedy scene. It's a show that has seen people go all the way from their very first show to national television. Tomorrow night, 7.30, at the Tempe Center for the Arts. For information about that show, go to ComedySchools.com. For information about when a Philadelphia Sandwich Company truck will be coming near you, uh, go to PhiladelphiaSandwichCompany.com. We're taking a brief break, and we'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to This American Podcast, Comedy Edition, on ComedySchoolsRadio.com.